are listening to a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So tonight's story of the poor widow coming to the temple to donate her two copper coins is one that I remember all the way back to my elementary age Sunday school. Jesus and his disciples are at the temple, seated across from the treasury where people would come and drop in their donations. They watched as these rich folk arrived and put in large sums. Then they see the poor widow coming with her meager coins. Truly, I tell you, Jesus says to his people, to his followers, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The point of the story seemed to be that it isn't the total amount of a donation that matters, but rather how relatively easy it was for those rich folk to put in large donations compared to the self-sacrificial gesture of that poor woman. Full stop. Or is it a full stop? I mean, There is something moving about what that poor woman has done, which was to give up much more than the rich folks did. They can drop in hundreds of shekels and hardly notice it all, but not her. She has only the equivalent of a few dollars, and that's what she gives. But pause there for a brief moment. Did I say a few dollars? Doesn't the Bible, the Bible, say that it's two copper coins she gave and they're worth about a penny? Well, that's actually a translation decision. And that varies considerably from version to version to version. The lepta was the lowest value Jewish coin. Two lepta, which is what she put in, that's in the Greek, two lepta equaled the Roman chondratas. The time the chondratas was equal to one sixty-fourth of a denarius, which is a full day's wage. So one sixty-fourth of a day's wage, that's what she put in. If we work with today's $15 an hour as an average wage for an unskilled laborer, you roll up to 120 bucks for an eight-hour day. Convert that back to the Kondrata's rate, and you wind up with that smaller coin or the two little pennies she put in being worth $1.88 or just under two bucks. Now, it's not all that important to the story, but it's not a bad thing to be aware of. And it does provide one of those points at which we can mull over the challenge of translation issues. What might be even more interesting, though, is a point made by Gerald West. He's a biblical scholar from South Africa. And I heard him speak in New York City back in 2011 
when I was attending a Trinity Institute conference. And Dr. West made the point that it's important to read these individual passages in their context and to understand that a gospel writer like Mark did actually have a big picture very much in view. Now, that might not sound all that earth-shattering, but in a sense, it really is a significant thing to keep in mind. See, when I was going through my studies at Trinity College at the University of Toronto in the 1980s, most of the biblical scholars at the seven theological colleges spread around that campus held a view that had much had been very common through most of the 20th century. Namely, that a writer like Mark was simply drawing on material he had inherited, both from the oral tradition and the written tradition that had held on to Jesus' teachings. Mark is writing in the early 60s, so 30-something years after Jesus had died. So it was said that he was collecting together everything that he'd heard or read about Jesus and putting it into a gospel package. When it came to a story like this one, he would, it was thought, tie the bits together with some word or idea as his organizing principle. If he has just written how the scribes devour widows' houses then he'd logically take this other little bit of material he has about a widow and tack it on next. And in fairness, you do see some of that happening in the Gospels, in which one word or theme will bridge to a similar one, but maybe that's an authentic remembering of what Jesus was doing, and maybe it wasn't so random This is where Gerald West suggested a very different way of looking at the text, one which takes the historical Jesus much more seriously. West insisted that Mark wasn't just stringing together a bunch of material he'd inherited as the Jesus stories, but was, in fact, very intentionally giving the reader the very closest thing he could to his understanding of the authentic Jesus. And so, West said, you must look at the material immediately preceding any teaching as well as any material that immediately follows. Then you get the flow of what Mark is doing, or Luke, or Matthew, or John. So, in the case of this story, of the widow giving her two little coins, We have right before that something that we read. We have those scribes. Those scribes who like to walk around in long robes, to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. Uh, At that time, the scribes were not allowed to charge money for their services as essentially language and scripture specialists. And so they relied entirely on donations to support their work. 
Both then and now, Larry Hurtado comments in his Mark commentary, both then and now there are examples of Jewish and Christian religious leaders who unscrupulously solicit support from simple, vulnerable people, who are led to believe that they are supporting the very work of God, but can ill afford to give as heavily as they are solicited to do. Think of the horror stories connected to the television preachers, the TV evangelists living grand lifestyles, opulent lifestyles, that are all too often supported by people who can barely keep food on their tables, right? I mean, you get the picture. Jesus is singularly unimpressed with that sort of devouring That's his word, devouring of people like these poor widows. And then right away, he's with his disciples still at the temple, sitting and watching as the donations get deposited in the temple treasury. Yes, he does hold up this poor woman as an example of self-sacrificial giving for, quote, she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. But that's not stated in a vacuum for the disciples because they've just heard the teaching about how the scribes are devouring widows. And then what immediately follows? What's next in the text? Well, at this point, we launch into the 13th chapter of Mark, which opens as follows. As Jesus came out of the temple where he had just been to witness these events, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones, what large buildings. Look at this place, man. You ever seen anything like it? And then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another All will be thrown down. That's interesting. It was here, Gerald West suggested, that we have an important commentary on that poor widow's donation to the temple treasury and on the temple as a whole. Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. That's not to negate The sacrifice the widow has made, by no means he does authentically praise her. But taken as a whole, what Jesus has just done is expose the bankruptcy and the hollowness of that temple system, and he says it simply will not last. The days are numbered when people like that poor woman are going to put their last two pennies in. Yet in these interim days, people like her will give and give and give until they have no more. And Jesus says God will surely see that. But this system will not and cannot last because scribes are getting rich, wearing fancy clothes and dining at banquets, while others like that poor woman are starving. Now, again, I don't think for a minute that Jesus is critical of that woman's sacrificial giving. 
but he is critical of a religious system that encourages her to bankrupt herself while others get wealthy. When we look at the beginning of the book of Acts, Acts which details what the Jesus people looked like on the other side of the resurrection, we discover an entirely different picture. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. That's from the second chapter of Acts. And how did this happen? That those people, those earliest Christians, had all that food to fill glad hearts because all who were believers shared so that no one would ever have to be without. They are already, in a sense, an alternative temple, a people together. Not that it always worked out that well, because the church, then and now, is full of real people, not plaster saints. And dig into Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and you can hear him just shaking his head at what's going on. He writes, When you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper. And one goes hungry, and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. And the long story of the church is littered with similar problems, with some becoming wildly wealthy and others being left hungry and in need, even though they bear the same belief system. Yet, it is so often at the times when things have become the most absurd, the most ridiculously out of line, that someone will emerge with a very different and thoroughly gospel-based view of things, which then shifts the imagination of the church back to consider something closer of who they are intended to be. If you have any doubt of that, just read the story of St. Francis of Assisi, who arose about a thousand years ago at a time when the poor old church was probably furthest from its true gospel roots. And simply by living in a gospel way, Francis managed to birth a whole new way of being God's people. We need those alternative figures in our midst. People whose imaginations are marked by the presence of Jesus and who help the church find our way closer to where we are intended to be. And the last thing, the very last thing we are intended to be is an institution that leaves out the poor widow, the struggling student, the bereft artist, or the person with an achingly empty stomach. 
because, frankly speaking, that's just not gospel. That's the good and challenging news that we hear tonight from the gospel according to Mark. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church and to access the full catalog of our podcasts going all the way back to 2006, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. In addition, if you are interested in supporting our online work, you can find information on the website using the Donate button located on the top right-hand corner. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.